Yes, God, we do ask you to speak now through your word. For unless you quicken our hearts, we won't really understand. Unless you give us eyes to see, the eyes of faith to see, we won't really see. Unless you give us ears to hear the truth, we won't really comprehend. And so, Lord, we put ourselves at your mercy, depending on you, but also knowing that you are a good and loving God and that your desire is to be known by your people. So we know that you're, that you're going to answer this prayer, that you would speak, that we would hear. Mm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, well, let me start. You can get right to your notes page if you want to. You can get right to your notes page. Let me just start by saying this. The opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Did I miss something? Okay, I got some weird looks. The opposite of, well, I'm being intentionally provocative with that, that line, of course. And you're going to give me, I'm sure, a few moments to unpack that and explain what I mean when I say that. But nevertheless, go ahead and write it down because I think there's a lot of wisdom. I didn't come up with that. It's been said by many people. But, I, but, but, but there's a lot of wisdom in that. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. If faith requires doubt to be faith, right? Does it not? Think about that for a second. If there were no doubt, it wouldn't be faith. Anyway, we'll talk more about that. We're in the ninth chapter of Mark now. Let me set the stage. Lauren read the first part of our scripture today from the uh, story of the transfiguration. Now, Jesus has taken his three of his disciples up the mountain, Mount Hebron. In all, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it's, we're pretty certain it was Mount Hebron. They're over in Caesarea Philippi for quite some time, I suppose, at least six days. Because after six days, the scripture says they went up this mountain. And then this amazing thing takes place where Jesus gives the disciples a glimpse of his Uh, his glory. Now, we don't know how long they were up on top of this mountain either, but uh, it's reasonable to think that they were up there for at least one night, overnight, because after all, the guys say, what do they say when they see Moses and Elijah? What's their first instinct? What do they want to do? Now, you all heard the story. What did they want to do? Pitch a tent. They want to build a tent, right? So they brought their tent-making gear with them, so it's likely that they were at least spending one night Maybe several. It takes, I think it's like 9,000 feet, Mount, Mount Hebron. And so it takes, I don't know if they went all the way to the top or halfway or what, but it takes a while to climb that, that size mountain. Well, now, while they're off on this vision quest, is it disrespectful to call it a vision quest? I don't know. What, 
whatever, while they're off on this experience, right? While they're off on this experience, the natives are getting restless. There's, there's trouble here in River City down at the bottom of the mountain. Now, now you might gloss over this whole, this whole preamble here, but, but, but what would a first century Jew, they would have made a connection right away that maybe you, 21st century American, might not even notice. Is there another time in the Bible, another time in the Bible where a man of God goes up uh, a mountain and he experiences a theophany. A theophany is a fancy word for when God shows up. He experiences, oh, Moses, yes! And he gets a word from the Lord, right? And then at the same time, at the bottom of the mountain, um, you know, all Hades is breaking loose, and, 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 and the people that he left in charge, right, they, they, they are complicit in it. They're letting the Aaron, the brother of Moses, was letting the people melt all their gold down and make an idol. Well, here, the nine disciples that Jesus left in charge, they're kind of le- allowing this uproar to take place too. Let's go to the scriptures and let's see what happens when these guys, Jesus and these disciples, come down from the mountain, right? They got their gear on their back. They're, they're, they're on cloud nine after what they've just seen. And then they hear this noise, right? The crowd, it's, it's arguing, it's fighting, it's, it's a clamor is going on. And they're, what in the, what's going on? So let's hear what happens as they approach. In verse 14 is where I'm going to start of the ninth chapter of Mark. And, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd among them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And the Gospel of Mark, especially, is the first gospel to be written. It's also the shortest gospel. And Mark, has he's always in a hurry. You'll see throughout Mark, you'll see the, immediately, right away, at that moment, you'll see him, he'll say this again and again. And he's also a fan of hyperbole. He'll use these exceedingly great adjectives to describe what's going on. You see a great crowd around them, and immediately all the crowd, not just some of the crowd, but all the crowd, right, when they saw him were greatly amazed, and they didn't just walk, but they ran to Jesus and greeted him. Verse 16, Jesus asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's coming up to the end. He's coming up to the crucifixion pretty quick now. He's been, a, he's been doing this for a while, and he's become a celebrity. Well, celebrity might not be the best word to use. He's more like a really controversial politician. Yeah. You know, when Air Force One lands here at Fort Wayne and, and the limousines drive through the city, you have on one side of the street, you got the cheering folks with the red hats, right? But on the other side of the street, it never fails. You have as many, maybe more, people with the counter-protest signs, right? That's how I think Jesus is at this point in his ministry. You got the people who are fans, who are committed. You got people who are just curious, or maybe they're just starstruck. They want to see somebody famous. And you got the people who know that this guy is no good, and we should oppose him. At least they think they know that, right? Well, here they have a man 
Jesus asks, what is all this commotion? What are you all arguing about? And this one man comes out of the crowd, comes forward to Jesus, and he describes what has happened. He's brought his son. He's desperate, desperate father. His son, it seems like he has epilepsy, right, pretty severely, very dangerous, very scary. He's brought his son to Jesus. And lo and behold, he gets there, and Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't there. He was off somewhere on a hike. They didn't know where he went, right? And so, no worries. The disciples assure him, we can take care of this. After all, if you've read the Gospel of Mark now, back in chapter 6, they did. They were given authority and they cast out many demons. Disciples are like, psh, been there, done that. We got this. Bring the boy to us. So they do their thing. Hocus pocus. I don't know what they said. Be gone from him, demon, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's as if the demon is mocking them. And then as if that weren't enough, now all these scribes, these are the counter-protesters, these are the guys who think that Jesus is the bad guy, now they all start saying, aha, they pounce on him. Aha, you see, you see, you guys claim to be from God. You're stirring up all these crowds. You're causing us all these problems. Rome's going to intervene here any time now because you guys are just uh, bringing all this trouble upon us following this guy. And, and if you were from God, clearly you'd be able to take care of a problem like this. You'd be able to heal this boy. You just said that you could, and now you can't. See, you're frauds. We knew you were frauds. We knew you were all along. And now there's this uproar. They're arguing. They're yelling at each other. This is the scene when Jesus and the three show up. So in verse 19, Jesus, he's exasperated. He's exhausted with all this. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? But he doesn't stay. He doesn't let his exhaustion or his exasperation cut off his love for his people. It's okay to be agitated, exhausted, right? Annoyed even. Those are normal feelings. But don't let it cut off your love. For other people. Jesus says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, here's another, immediately, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. You see here how evil reacts to being in the presence of God? Violently, dramatically. The devil can seem pretty scary. The devil can seem pretty scary, but let me tell you, in the face of your God, standing before your God, the best the devil can do is throw a temper tantrum. That's all he can do. That's all he's got. Now, his temper tantrums, can they still hurt? Yeah. This was going to be the last seizure this boy ever had, but it still hurt. It was still scary. To those watching. 
But nevertheless, you and I have to believe, and we have to remember that this is a temper tantrum that the devil is throwing. If he brings bad things against you, when he brings bad things against you, because if he's not right now, he will. View it that way. Oh, it'll drive him crazy. Just view it as a temper tantrum that the devil is throwing because he's been put in a corner. He's been put in an eternal corner. And he knows his days are numbered. The devil can still throw temper tantrums, but his temper tantrums are coming to an end. In verse 21, Jesus, he has such great bedside manner because he truly loves his patients. Jesus says to the Father, how long has the boy been like this? How long has this been happening to him? And the Father says, from childhood, and it often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus, a little bit irked again, isn't he? Look what he says next. If you can? <laughs> he must be thinking, who does this guy think I am? If I can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, another immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And what a beautifully honest cry that is, right? What a beautiful, everybody, if you followed Christ for long, ha haven't you cried that cry before? I believe simultaneously, help my unbelief. Jesus says something else. It's worth just a little rabbit trail here for me. He says something else. He says, all things are possible to one who believes. Now, we can talk about what Jesus means when he says this phrase, but one thing I want to be sure just to say this morning is there's one thing he cannot mean. There's one thing that that cannot mean. He cannot mean that now that you are a Christian, now that you're all Christians, you can heal every disease, solve any riddle, leap any tall building in a single bound. He cannot mean that. There's nobody in the Bible who has that ability. If he meant that, there would be people in Scripture who had that ability. He doesn't. They don't, except Jesus himself. What Jesus means is this. The things that you think are impossible, those things that cause your anxiety to get really high, your palms to get sweaty, your breathing to get shallow, those things that cause you to stay up at night worrying, the things that cause you great fear, they do not phase your God. What you think is impossible, the things that feel impossible to you, are not impossible to God. And then, implicitly, but everybody understands what he's doing here, immediately he throws the ball back into the Father's court. Jesus saying this, if I can, all things are possible to one who believes. He's immediately putting the ball back, in the, without even asking the question, he's asking the question, do you believe? Do you believe that? 
And by implication, he's asking you and I, do we really believe that? Do you really believe that? And the Father, without missing a beat, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The same phrase Mark will use in just a couple more chapters. He arose. And when he had entered the house, this is Jesus now, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Quite a story. Vivid story, right? Those characters, they're real. They jump off the page at us. The writing is powerful. It's emotional. And as I started the message today with these two words, I'm going to say these two words are what comes to me when I meditate on this story. The words of faith versus certainty. Faith versus certainty. They both sound like really good words, don't they? Both positive things. But yet, I, again, I started this message with that intentionally kind of trying to poke, poke your buttons a little bit with that phrase that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Certainty, heck, that's a really good thing. Who doesn't want to be certain, right? We want to be certain. When I call, if I'm having a problem with my cell phone and I need to take it to the Apple store to get it worked out, right? I want to be certain before I wait in line for five hours and spend $200, I better be pretty darn certain that these guys are going to be able to fix the problem. If I'm at the doctor's office, and I've got these symptoms, I don't know what to make of it, I don't want the doctor to, to, on a hunch, prescribe me some medicine, and then say, you know, tell me how that treats you. You know, call me back tomorrow, let me know if it does any good. No, I want him to be certain what my diagnosis is so that he can treat me correctly, right? This is all well and good in the realms uh, of science and technology. That's fine. But, but we have to understand, when we're talking about the holy God, certainty, it's, it's elusive, isn't it? It's kind of like trying to grasp at smoke. Certainty. As soon as we think we have it, like he messes with us. But that doesn't mean that it's bad to study. It doesn't mean that it's bad to, to try and get answers to the questions that we have. You know, the kids were up here, and, and I encouraged them to ask questions. How do I know the Bible's true? How do I know, you know, you know, that there really is a God? Ask those questions, absolutely. 
Ask those questions. You, you know the field of apologetics? You know what apologetics is? When I was in high school, I got into apologetics. It was really cool. Apologetics, it doesn't mean saying you're sorry for everything. Um, <clears throat> no, apologetics, it's offering reasons for the faith that you have. So somebody, I'll give you an example. Somebody might uh, be an atheist. They'll tell me I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Okay, so as an apologetic, I might ask a question. I might say, well, why is there something rather than nothing? It's a very simple apologetic, but that's, that's an apologetic, right? Either the answers, there's probably only three answers, either it had to be, there had to be something, in other words, nothing is, or, um, or it was, uh, it happened by accident, it just happens to be, or it was intended to happen, right? Those are kind of our three answers, and then we talk about one, two, and three, and which one's the most, makes the most sense. That's, that's apologetics. Um, as uh, C.S. Lewis or many others, they would appeal to the moral law. In other words, why, why do we all universally, human beings, have this moral law inside us? We don't always agree on what's right and wrong, but pretty much any culture, you, you shouldn't just go up to a little old lady and push her down in the street. We all know that's bad. You can't just go up to somebody and, and take something from them. Everybody knows that's bad. Even in a society where it's permissible, everybody who's watching it knows that that's bad. There's something wrong with that. That's messed up. There's a moral law inside our hearts where we know right and wrong. We don't have to be taught many of these things. Why is that? Well, the argument goes because there is a moral law giver, right? So there, there's two simple apologetics for why we know or why we believe that God exists. But do either of those make me certain? No. They can't make me certain. Just as any argument that you have that God doesn't exist cannot make you certain about that either. So the one thing, though, we shouldn't have any tolerance for is, have you heard of Richard Dawkins? He's, a, he's kind of the face of the new atheist movement. He's kind of has been by now, old news by now. But, but he, he, he says, um, I'm against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. And of course, that's a straw man. That's bogus. That's nonsense. It doesn't. All the Christian scientists that you know from, from, from history, are all the scientists, the big scientists, what I'm trying to say is everybody who's discovered anything worth discovering until about 50 or 100 years ago, they were all Christians. They're believers. They believe in God. They're theists. Because they understood that the more I discover about the world, the more I'm discovering about God. No, of course being a believer does not tell you to be satisfied with not understanding the world. But you're not going to be certain. If I'm a person of faith, I am going to tell you if certainty is what you're after, you might be disappointed. Let's define our terms real quick and then we'll, get, we'll, we'll move on here. Certainty is knowing, right? Certainty is knowing for sure that you're right. Where does certainty exist in the story that we read today? Certainty exists, first of all, in two places. It exists with the religious leaders who had come to follow Jesus and keep track of all the things that he was doing that were wrong. They're certain that Jesus was bad for, for society. And certainty also exists with the disciples, the nine that were left behind, who back in chapter 6, they cast out many demons, so they figured uh, they can do this, right? Seminary professors, uh, Professor Mark Strauss, he concludes, he's at Bethel Seminary, he says apparently the disciples had taken for granted the power of exorcism given to them, or had come to believe that it was inherent in them. Got that? They were taking it for granted, or they'd come to believe that it was simply part of who they 
were. In other words, they were certain. Certain that they had arrived. Certain that they had figured this stuff out. Certain that they had enough faith to do this. Now, certainty means knowing for sure that you're right. What is faith? It's simply a math. It's a math equation. Faith equals lack of certainty plus trust. Lack of certainty plus trust. We see this in the story too. The three guys up on top of the mountain. (laughs) They got no idea what's going on. This is the craziest darn thing they've ever seen. But they trust. Rabbi, what should we do? They ask him questions. What's his, what about Elijah? What if Elijah was supposed to come first, right? Jesus says, all this you've seen, it'll make sense after my death and resurrection, but don't tell anybody for now. I mean, what a secret to keep. Apparently they kept it. They trusted. They trusted. And where else do we see this uh, lack of certainty plus trust? Of course, the father, right? The father in the story, who's come from heaven knows how far away with his little boy, Because he trusts, is he certain? No, he's not certain. He admits that he's not certain, but he trusts that Jesus can help him. He trusts that Jesus can help him. So why does this matter? So what, right? What can we take from here? I want you to do four things for me. The first thing is to celebrate your faith. You should celebrate your faith. Because for some of you, faith comes really easily. Some of you will say, of course I can't know everything about God. That's why you just have to have faith. It's not because you're certain. It's because you have been given the gift of faith. There's something very exciting about this. There's something pure and holy and innocent and just great about this. Celebrate that because you didn't come up with that on your own. That's a gift. My two-year-old Skyla, you know, she will come, uh, use this image. Let's say she's here standing on a step and she's going she's gonna to jump. She's just messing around. She's playing. She's going to jump. She jumped down to, the, down to the floor. And she'll do this all day. She'll go, yay, and she'll jump, right? She'll jump. And that she is certain, she's certain what that experience of jumping, one step, is going to be like. And so she can do it all day. Her heart rate never increases. She never gets anxious or nervous or anything. But she climbs up to the top of her sister's bunk bed, and she's hanging over, and she's looking at me. She says, Daddy, catch me. And I say, okay, here I am. I'm going to catch you. And she doesn't jump right away. She hems and haws, right? And you can see her little lips quivering, right? And she's, and eventually... I get my hands a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and eventually she does it, right? And yay, we it's fun, she laughs and everything, but was she certain? Was she certain that I was going to catch her? Was she certain that it wasn't going to hurt? No, but she trusted me. She trusted me because she knows me, right? That's a picture of faith. And if you have that faith, if you've been able to, 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 to jump into God's arms. Celebrate that because, oh, that is a gift. You can't put a value on that gift. Celebrate it. The second thing is to be humble because understand, we have differences. 
we love to be certain. I understand that. We want to be certain because being certain, it just makes life so much simpler. If I can just know everything and control everything, I get that. Theologians and Christians, we do this too. Just, I'll simply say this. Know that there is a difference between convictions, beliefs, and opinions. Does that make sense? Convictions, beliefs, and opinions. Convictions, I would die for my convictions, but I don't have very many of them relative to the others, right? I have a whole lot of beliefs that I think are pretty important. I have a whole lot of them. I thought about them. I've come to them for reasonable, you know, might change my mind, but probably not, right? But those are, I'm not going to die for them, right? And then I got as many opinions as, I mean, just ask me a question. I'll give you an answer, right? What are they worth? Be humble. Because other people have convictions, beliefs, and opinions too. Be empathetic. The third one is be empathetic. Because faith might come easily for you, but you know it doesn't come easily for everybody. It doesn't come easily for your neighbor. The book of Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. It's one tiny... One chapter, tiny little book. It's a letter. It's a letter. It's a very serious tone because Jude is worried about this baby church and the false teachers that have come in, that are coming in and preaching a different gospel. But then one of the things he tells them at the conclusion of the letter, and I just love this because it's so pastoral, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Isn't that great? Have mercy on those who doubt. Just because somebody doesn't yet share the same faith as you does not mean that they are eternally lost. Pray for them that God would give them faith. And last thing, the last thing is be bold. Maybe you're the one who faith is difficult for you today. Are there any skeptics in the room? I don't know. But for you... My counsel is this. If you are waiting to be certain before putting your faith in Jesus, you will never trust him. You will remain lost in your sin, separated from God for all eternity. It's very serious. You... You can't wait to be certain. You know you can't even be certain that you're sitting in this room listening to a sermon right now. If you're waiting for God to answer all your questions on your terms before you trust him and give your life to him, who's God in that picture? And who's the servant? But listen, you know that the world is broken. He's shown you enough. You know that you're a part of that. You're a victim. Sure, you're a victim of the brokenness of the world, but you're also a perpetrator. You've done wrong. You've violated that moral law that we've talked about. And the Bible says because your sin has to be dealt with, there's only one solution that you can provide, and that is to die. Die for your sin. 
or the scriptures give another way. Jesus that we worship, he was more than a healer, more than an exorcist, more than a teacher. He was God himself, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. And his mission was to live the perfect human life, to die in your place. He was sinless, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. We might be called sons and daughters of the living God. All things are possible, you see, to the one who believes. Do you believe? Do you believe? Tell him today. Yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And know that you are his now and for all eternity. Amen.